Hi, I'm Patrick. And I'm Jeff. And we're making a TV show. With Patrick's writing. And Jeff's experience. We're on the journey to turn this story into the next bingeable series. We're documenting our collaboration. The highs and lows and everything in between. So that you can see what it takes to make a TV show while we're developing it. This is Two Guys Making a TV Show. On today's episode, we're going to dig into character development a little bit. When we started working on the show Bible, we realized one of the characters wasn't as clear as we thought she was. We're also going to discuss the purpose and use of a teaser, how we can get it done, in what way, and what it might get us. So at the end of the last podcast, we talked about a couple of things we're working on. One was editing the show Bible, which we'll talk about in a second. We started an engagement with AngelSpan, investor relations service, typically for seed stage startups, but applied for us because we want to be that steward of the these investors. We're not just building an art project. We're building something that has a, a particular investment thesis. Yes. Especially given how much money is going into TV. So AngelSpan is a, a service then that would help us keep those investors in mind and deliver what they expect out of an investment vehicle. Lastly, we talked about the Rolodex, the sorts of connections that we draw upon to get the word out to do any number of things, build an audience, potential cast or crew recommendations to get access to uh, additional writers or producers if, if or directors, so be it, or investment. Because who knows where these connections go? So this is where we're at. And then today we wanted to focus on uh, two things. One, that, that Show Bible, as we started digging into it, we realized there are some questions that still need to be answered and how that relates to the development of a teaser. And then beyond that, like what's the ultimate objective? Sure, we're making the show, but once it's made, once we can view it, at least the pilot, what are we doing with it? Where do those invest investors get a return? Where are there particular opportunities that are rising now that might not have been present or as present 10 years ago? That sort of thing. Excellent. I think AngelSpan is going to be a fantastic tool for us. I really believe that producers uh, in this day and age, just the paradigm shifts and we're becoming more and more the captains of our own ships in many ways. We owe it to investors and to the hard-earned money that they supply in order to put gas in the machine, so to speak. We owe it to them to let them know at a steady drumbeat what's going on, what has developed. We're not just artists in a workshop tinkering away, not to be bothered until you know our masterpiece comes out of our out of our forehead like Venus, you know, fully formed. I don't believe in that at all. I believe in in sort of that that Ray Dalio sort of radical transparency model of just letting everyone know what's going on at all times, an idea meritocracy. Now, obviously, I think the filmmaker has to take it upon them to make sure that the best ideas rise to the top in, in service to the production. But you cannot have an idea meritocracy if there's no line of communication for those ideas to flow. I think having great communication with investors, with prospective collaborators, and just your audience, frankly, some of these people, 
via AngelSpan may not necessarily invest this time around, but will definitely probably keep a finger on the pulse of the project and, and, and may down the road say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I missed out on this very cool thing. Let me know when the next one comes up, right? So I think yeah. that that's also a great benefit to, to something like AngelSpan. With the amount of money that's being poured into TV, it could be a huge opportunity to, to get on board and show potential investors that uh, this is a train they want to get on. So yeah, I think it's, it's something to try out at least and experiment with, uh, knowing that we're making this show so that we can make additional shows so that we can have a rotating slate of shows to put out. But of course, we got to get this show done. We can talk about then that came up last night as you sent uh, awesomely edited Bible, adding in some of the components of the lookbook into the Bible, dressing up the story that I drafted a week or so ago and really added some richness to that. We started digging into some of the characters and there's a particular character, Amy, that has changed a bit in the, the film she was the popular girl and that was kind of it that sort of bonded with um, Ashley and her arc left her with realizing that her peak was going to be in high school. And that's why she wanted to hold on to that for as long as possible. When we pivoted to the TV idea and started expanding the world to say, well, what sort of world could produce this community? And we developed all of that in the vein of Truman Show, Village, Lost, and added the, the heavy mystery thriller element, Amy changed. She still looked like the popular girl. She still had that initial kiss with Sal and humiliation afterwards, but she was doing it for a very different reason. Here she is an agent of this larger corporation that is uh, by decree creating these tribal groups with this larger mission of achieving world peace through division and factioning tribes right so now she she resembles this popular girl but that's only a front a, a manipulation of sorts so when when we're updating who she is and what her ultimate motivation is, I, I realized looking at the draft yesterday, thought, okay, something, something isn't answered yet for me. Why is it that she is this sort of chaos agent? Why is she usurping in some sense Father Hamler's control? Why does she care? Why, does she, why did she leave Safe Harbor, the neighboring town, to come and pretend that she was Principal Larry's daughter or add to the, the brewing powder keg to launch the inevitable struggle between Marathon and Safe Harbor. Knowing that she's this agent and provocateur, why? What, what, is, what is driving her there? You're asking the perfect question. All of those statements that you made started with the word why. Why is such a powerful tool for exactly this purpose in crafting the best character possible? I think a good place to start is, is the 30,000 foot view, like you did in broad terms, Amy is now one of our antagonists, right? The arc that she'll, that her journey will be on is much more nuanced than that. To say she's an antagonist implies that she's evil, 
What's more interesting, and especially in today's day and age, is not so much the question of good or evil, but- Oh, I'm going to interrupt you. I just thought of something. And it stemmed from uh, your comment. You wrote yesterday, her potential mystery could be who her real father is. That I think settled in for a little bit because she's pretending to be Larry's daughter. And the audience won't know that until a reveal later on set up to where she's just impersonating that. So the thought that just popped in my head that had me interrupt you is she's an agent of this corporation. What is it that has her try to do this really good job that she thinks other people are just standing in the way of? Like why the urgency, right? Like that's really what's different between her approach and Hamler's approach or even the the mayor of Safe Harbor, um, his approach, Newsom. She must have a sense of urgency. This has got to get done faster. And she's willing to bend people, break people to advance that. So what if she's doing it because she knows her father's in trouble and the only person that can help would be someone at the MeWe Corporation, David Norseman, who's CEO of this group, what if he's let her know he can find her father for her? He knows where her father is. He knows how he can help. Something like that, that's put her in a situation where she feels like she has to rush all of these things so that she can get back to her father. Like, what if there's something there where that, like, that's, that's where the urgency is created for her. Like, she's willing to just throw people under the bus and do whatever it takes to make this event happen, knowing that once she's able to do that, she's been promised something. So she really does want to know who her father is, who, and in turn, you could say in a broader sense, who her family is. That's her objective. Is it more interesting, and I don't know the answer to this, is it more interesting that at the get-go, he's already given her that carrot to chase, and that's what motivates her? Or is it that she was motivated to find her father because she wants to be that's, that's love, right? She wants to be connected to her family. That seems like something that's pretty motivating. And her tactics are, are this is all fake and a charade anyway. So I'm just going to say, like, I don't care if I really hurt your feelings. You're not really real to me in some, to some extent because you're sort of just a part of the, the, the smoke and mirrors. And it's that willingness to accomplish those things and that effectiveness at accomplishing those things that someone like a David Norseman at the end of the season goes, Oh, you're interesting. You know what? I could help you find your, I could be much more help than, than going about doing it the way you're doing. You're never going to find him that way. I could help you find him. You're just going to have to do this now. And then she sort of recruited into the next stage of her journey. We could see her essentially take on the journey that, we, that you're describing in season two. Boom. Now she's been, she's been given more powers and more access and a slightly different set of, of objectives, though still trying to achieve the master objective of finding her father who may or may not be alive. We don't know that David Norseman's telling the truth, to be honest. And we don't even have to decide that at this point. And then by season three, she's so gone down this rabbit hole. By season three, she may or may not, depending on what David Norseman tells her, who knows, her art, her journey might put her in a place that's very different than where she started. That's the hope anyway. That's the hope of any character, right? Is that they wind up somewhere much different than where they started. Otherwise, there's no growth. Why have we been watching them this whole time? If they don't grow, if they don't change, then it's not interesting. It begs a question for me, where was she when she was born? It sounds to me like she was in Safe Harbor. She, she could have been, been in a big city. Yeah, she like could have been wonder, anywhere. I wonder if if she was in kind of a no-name town and her father was like a conspiracy theorist. We're all being watched all the time. 
something like that. And then he disappears mysteriously. And she goes on this hunt to figure out where he is. And maybe what happens with her is she has a similar thing happen to her like Sal did, where she discovers some camera. But instead of people taking her out, like presumably what happened to her father, kidnapping him or whatever, there's a lure to say, well, you actually could maybe help us out a little bit. And so Amy, maybe that's what drew Amy to safe harbor is to be a confederate of sorts in that town. Ah, that's get, it gets complicated, though. What if she... So I like where you're going where... I don't think... Okay, so I like... To our immediate sense, she's from Safe Harbor, right? That's where she'll say... That's the last place she was in before she got here. What if she's a crack in the system? What if she's a virus, so to speak? And she's she is the 0.01% that that doesn't really comply and she's not a huge threat she's 0.01 percent inefficiency in the model right and she's taking the trains that we say the rail lines that connect some of these places right all that only me we trains operate mm-hmm. she's taking those from place to place to place so her movements are small relatively speaking though she has covered some ground maybe she was in dallas before that or odessa or kansas city or whatever and now she's here in in marathon and her motivation is Sal in a way. She had a moment just like Sal where she said, oh my gosh, the world isn't what it seems. Whereas Sal is trying to ultimately goes on a journey where he says, we need to heal. We need to unify. We need to, to come together and, and, and mend. She said, no, 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 no. Screw all you guys. I'm being lied to. I am. She's the ultimate cynic in a way. And that's why she's manipulative. That's why she's she uses her tools so ruthlessly in a way for her relative to her age to get what she wants because this is just another fake disneyland you know place to her just as the last place was just as the place before that ever since she found that camera she doesn't trust anything she is i don't want to say she's a conspiracy theorist because she's right and she's on to something she's who the conspiracy theorists would reference but she's that one little virus she's that one little thing that doesn't seem to work right in your computer in the me we computer of everything in the system she's still moving around where she shouldn't be so she's not a huge threat right she's not a a war chief or a politician or something those have been taken care of long ago she's this little leftover but that little leftover is now is now going to grow so by the time i think we get again to like season three she's a darth vader norseman is the emperor she can grow into a vader-like figure who may or may not be totally into what the emperor has to say but she's getting what she wants and she's getting a bigger picture. She's getting a better map. So, so it could be that she's someone that is an orphan, Mm -hmm. like a hobo riding the train. And there's a community of people, a small band of hobos that ride these trains and hide and get all of their food and water, whatever, as they like scratch some of the supplies, but try to stay hidden. Yep. And she discovers uh, camera system and maybe it's not even pointed at her they've j- they've done so well to hide and kind of be off the grid in a way that nobody else has and she presents it to uh, like a fellow traveler who kind of says like yeah so powerful people have always been spying on the powerless or something like that kind of giving yeah. like a that's just the way that the world works yeah um, they've given up and she has a like no this is terrible. And like, she has this strong feeling that that's not the way it should work. 
And that's why she gets off the train and tries to establish some sort of normal life in Safe Harbor. Let, let's say she's a, a teenager and she tries to establish this normal life in Safe Harbor and she realizes that it's as if the people don't want to know that they're being spied on. And they end up saying, don't mess it up. It would be anarchy if we made all of this public. Like, let's say she tried to talk with Newsom and no, oh, there's these cameras here. And he's like, do you really know what it would be like if everybody realized this? It would break all of this apart. The irony being it broke all apart. And this is what replaced the, the, the break that happened generations earlier. And she becomes so disheartened by this lack of interest that people have, that like people are just living in this dystopia, not even realizing it lotus eaters that she's like screw it push it this way they want like a little instigation between these two groups push it that way manipulate that part like she's the ultimate cynic like you said like it all it just none of it matters she can't really change anything and so in saying that she can't really change anything she is the chaos agent I think to empathize with her too, at the same time, if you're her and you found out that essentially you're being watched at all times and the community you lived in is regulated down to its transactional exchanges between a shopkeep and a customer, right? On that face-to-face -face level, what control over your destiny do you have? What life are you going to lead that's not already predetermined by an algorithm controlled in a, in a, in a server? Server. It's, it's kind of like the matrix, right? Like it's kind of like you can, yeah. you know that you're going to be from start to finish, your life is sort of preordained by algorithm. What point is that? That's not freedom. What she's concerned with is having control over her life. And as part of that, knowing where you come from and knowing who your family is and in a world that is essentially all smoke and mirrors in, in, in many ways. So as she is granted, let's say at this end of the season, she's granted what feels like kind of that opportunity. I'm going to give you, Norseman can say, you've caught my eye. I'm going to, and remember, this guy's someone that like, he doesn't need to say anything to anyone, right? He's essentially the master of the universe in some ways. To catch his eye in the first place means that you're doing something out of the norm. To be offered a piece of the puzzle, to, to take that devil's bargain later on where she can go, okay, I'm going to take this for now so that by way I can, again, begin to put this piece of the puzzle together. So I don't think, I think she should come, and I think it's already there in the Bible, right? She should come very much, much closer to where she was before in terms of finding her father. But I don't know that finding her father in the first season is, is useful to her arc overall. She doesn't realize that that's what she's missing. Like yeah. She could just be operating off of, I'm, I'm a lone wolf. Right. Um, and it could be that someone like a David Norseman teases that to her. I know all you want in this world is to to know where your parents are. And yeah. she can have a, like, no, of course not. No, I don't care. Like, what did they ever do to for me? I've been on my own. Like, yeah. she fights against this feeling of connection because she's yeah. been disconnected for so long. The idea that she would introspect and say, no, I really long for this connection yeah. with the people that matter most to me. Like, that brings up too much pain. Shut it down, remain disconnected so that she can play these games, um, exerting her feelings of freedom in the world. She's the inverse of Sal in that way. Sal's is... very explicit about his wanting his sorts of connections. He, yeah. He's an authentic person. Yes. And I think what we can show with the inverse between Sal and Amy is that 
Amy is not authentic. She is exhibiting what she sincerely believes is a free, unattached life, right. but it's only a mask of her pain. Right. And they're both, through their developments, she appears as the stronger character, the one that knows more, can do more in charge of her world. And Sal is being put upon by his world. And I think what, what we can end up playing out is that that authenticity wins in the end. Yeah. Because it's like an, an unending fire. You can't extinguish that flame. But Amy can only push so far before she descends into masking that level of pain that she might be trying to hide from. You look long into the abyss and the abyss looks long into you, right? She is that, she is that character in some sense. To answer your question, you know, as we go back and revise this and, and really craft what it is that she, who she is as a character and why, I oftentimes like to go back to the themes. Theme in the Aristotelian sense of, of storytelling, theme is thought. What thought are we talking about? Are we expressing in our story? What question are we answering? One of those questions that serves as a major theme, what do people do with influence? How are they acted upon and how do they act with influence, right? So she's someone who has noticed influence and is resisting it, right? Outright. She is like an animal attacking her. She's fending for herself. And because of that, like you said, she's, she's creating chaos. And there's a little fun to be had in that power. So her tactics by way of theme will always sort of serve to answer that question little by little in terms of her character. So all the characters are answering that question in their own way. And it's not to say that one is right and one is wrong. Uh, it's better if they all feel like they're right. And then eventually we'll see. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I don't want to lose sight too of, of that power of connection. Because that's, yeah. that's what, what. She's I the power think. of disconnection. Right. She, she's someone that exhibits disconnection and at first teases you with, this is how powerful you can be if you remain unattached. Power for a little bit but it takes a lot of energy. You destroy a lot of people in the process. You, you don't make a whole lot of friends. You don't know what it feels like to have joy or meaning. Yeah. And Sal on the other hand is, goes through pain. He goes through shit, but what's gonna come out for him is that undying faith of being true and remaining an optimist about the power of connection. One of the things that we've talked about uh, doing and are gearing up for, and you wrote a, a script for, is a teaser. So I thought we could talk a bit about what is a teaser, what are we trying to do with it, and how it leads us to the ultimate goal of selling the show. Yes. Okay. So your sizzle is oftentimes anywhere from a minute, you know, 60 seconds, 90 seconds to... I've seen a sizzle that was uh, essentially six to seven minutes. It was a non-scripted thing. So they wanted to give enough time to sort of uh, properly showcase the concept that was the show and how the mechanics of the competition would work. So I think they needed a little bit more time. But oftentimes with narrative pieces, they can be shorter. They're like trailers, essentially, that give the look and feel and tone and story of your story. 
and leave enough for the imagination of whoever you're showing it to, to sort of take it and run, right? Now, all these other documents, these supporting documents, the pitch document, the Bible, the script, I can now examine those with, with everything kind of snapped into place, right? So sizzles can be wonderful tools. Obviously, you want to make them as cost-effectively as possible because though you have them, they're not necessarily a guarantee that your thing is going to be picked up. They're just another tool in your toolbox to really properly get across the point of the project. There is a different school of thought, and it is no less credible. It's just a different approach where in lieu of a sizzle, someone might do something called a pay or play. Now, a pay or play is the idea that you have financing and you want to use, let's call it the same amount of capital as it would take for a sizzle. And you want to get someone attached. And let's say for the sake of, of convenience, it's Tom Cruise. And you're saying, hey, Tom Cruise, I have this project. I'd like you to be attached. And I'd like to use your name. And I'd like you to be cool with that. So that I can go to finance other financiers and, and sell the package to raise more financing. And I'm going to tell them that Tom Cruise is involved. And he's going to say, great, okay, you're going to pay me, I'm just pulling a number out of thin air, you're going to pay me $65,000. I'm going to lock off the dates that you, you think this is going to happen. You're going to pay me that regardless of whether or not I'm a part of the project, because things may change, or whether the project even happens, or whether you even raise a dime after that. So you're going to pay me that much money to use my name, you know? And uh, when we get to the point at which you you have something for, for us to move to the next stage, then we'll talk again and so forth, right? Now, that's kind of a crude example. It shows you know, just what might happen, but essentially what the comparison that I'm making is that whether you use $65,000 on a trailer that perfectly encapsulates what it is you're trying to tell, or whether it is you're using $65,000 to get a star name, a star showrunner, a star director, whomever, to come onto a project just so that you can continue to raise more financing, there is risk involved. So to my thinking, and I've been on kind of both of these, this fork in the road, another TV show I'm working on, we did the pay or play models. I've been in other projects where we found that having an asset that we could show visually was worth more to us because the nature of the project was smaller. It was more nimble. It didn't need a Tom Cruise attached to it to see the light of day. It just needed enough of a presence in order to get us to the next tranche you know, the next investment so that we can get the thing across the finish line slowly but surely. Yeah. At the end of the day, I don't necessarily prefer one to the other. It's sort of like saying I prefer a screwdriver to a hammer. But I but think it is, then, uh, like you, you might be just about to say it for, for our project. And I know we've talked about both. Yes. We've talked about um, having some star power to act in this teaser so that it becomes like, oh shit, right. they've got this person in it. Oh, like it, it self serves as a sort of calling card. And right, then right. we've also talked about getting good actors that might not have the brand cachet of the Tom Cruise um, and do it well for a relatively low amount of investment to get a high caliber piece of work done and right, then right. use that as a, Hey, 
this is we were able to accomplish this on this sort of budget this gets the tone and the, the feel of the show put across and here we've got a list of potential investors that already know me know us that might be more warm to investing in this sort of project to begin with i prefer this i think for this project it serves us better because not only do we just have something that we can continue to show future collaborators, right? But I think that it's protecting the, the, the investment of future investors better because I don't ever want to be in a position where we come back to some, where we, let's say we got Tom Cruise to be a part of Roe. Then for whatever reason, because he's a busy guy, he can't do it anymore. But that's how we raised all our financing. We got everyone excited about Tom Cruise being in the show. So now we come back to them and we say, hey guys, I know we raised a million dollars or whatever in, in capital. Just so you know, that thing you thought you were investing in, Tom Cruise being a part of this project, he couldn't do it. He's got Mission Impossible 12 to do. Now we're going to look for someone else. Well, you told me that you had Tom Cruise. So I kind of want my money back because I don't know who the next person is. So I don't want to sell someone on the idea and the excitement and the adrenaline rush of a name more than the investment of an idea and being like, oh, I see exactly what you guys are going to do. I see exactly what it is that we're making. And Slowly but surely, it's a slower, steadier climb. But when you do get that other person who, again, knows exactly what you're doing, they're invested, right? They're invested in the what, and they're invested in the why, and they're invested in the how. To me, again, it's a more transparent approach. Yeah, and it probably goes to that uh, list of folks that I'm putting together for AngelSpan are, are people that already know who I am and potentially yeah. have the means to help get a good chunk of the uh, investment taken care of. So yeah. if we didn't have that, then that might for, might have forced our hand to something else. But I think we might be in a good spot yeah. here to say, all right, if, if we've got a network of people that we could potentially call upon that would be able to invest, like let's make a good product that we can get the budget under control, the emotional gut punch of the show rather than Right you now, at some point we were like, oh, wouldn't it be awesome if we could get Matthew McConaughey? If we did that, people invested off of that. And then Matthew McConaughey was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to either. I'm not going to continue or I've got scheduling conflicts. That would be a huge blow to all those investors that we said, oh, trust us. Yeah. Even if he said, hey, I'm still going to do it, but I can't do it for five years because I've got five years worth of projects in front of you. That's a potential blow to them as well, who are people who are expecting perhaps a return on their capital a little bit sooner than five years, right? That's a, yeah. that's a pretty big ask, I think, for a project that's got so much risk. When you have an asset like a sizzle, you open up an opportunity, especially in this new paradigm that we're, we're entering where theaters are not going to be a up and, and fully running for some time yet. And yet there's this insatiable need for content as be, around the world that people are looking towards via streaming. Mm-hmm. There's an opportunity, I think, to take a, to take a sizzle and to actually do uh, essentially what happens in the indie feature world and the feature world in breaking is pre-sales, is shopping it around, is finding those networks territory by territory who might be willing to subsidize either fully or in part your budget and a platform for you to distribute your your project, right? So let's say country X in in Europe says, oh my gosh, we saw the sizzle for Roe. We love it. We want to have a, uh, let's call it an exclusive deal. We want to be the only people in Europe that have this for the first season, for the first year. Or we want to be the only network within our country that has it for the first year. And we're willing to pay for that. 
That's a premium, right? You want exclusivity? That's going to be more expensive than non-exclusivity. And, and when you say uh, a country asking for it, like there's there's likely an individual or a representative in the government in a particular department that is saying that, right? Like, so what what would a what would a I, I don't even know, like, who who is that in a particular government? Oftentimes, what you would do is you would rely on, and this would be the same in this case, you would, you would get yourself a sales rep that can help and already has those lines of communication with the heads of acquisitions at different networks, right? The difference between our American model and many models worldwide, Japan, Europe, uh, many parts of Asia, including, is that their networks are oftentimes either closely aligned or essentially arms of the government, right? So they have state-mandated, you know, state-controlled media. BBC is technically uh, an example of this, right? So when you go to you go to your sales rep and you say, okay, we're going to start shopping this around for pre-sales. What relationships are you going to rely on first? They'll provide you with sort of a list of like these are where we're going to go first. We're going to go to France, Germany, Turkey you know, and the UK, whatever, Italy. And each of those has their different nuance that they'll, uh, of media and how distribution works, but they'll work with that sales rep and by extension, the production to find that right balance. So let's say, let's say we're talking to some, a distributor in Turkey. They are that they have that same relationship with the government, right? It's, they want an exclusive deal where this will be the only network amongst the, let's say top five that have access to, to content from around the world like this, they'll pay a premium for it. Let's say they pay $500,000 an episode. So they're getting a good deal, right? They're getting a great deal. They've provided all the, the production budget that we need in order to shoot and complete the first season. So we've already hopefully recouped our initial investment. All of our investors are now out of the hole. And remember, we're not asking them to, to finance the whole season. We're only asking them, we're only raising enough capital essentially to finance the first episode. So in from that, the investors, from the investors, right? So we're, we're, we can hopefully pull them out. We can, we can take that note, pay it down as much as possible. We now say, okay, this is the only place we can sell it in Turkey. We go to France, we go to Italy, we go to the UK, we do the same thing. If Turkey were to say, no, 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 we want to be the only one in Europe that shows it. Not sure why they would say that because it's in a different language, but let's say they did. Well, that's, a, that's an even higher premium, right? So now that, that budget we're going to say is 750 to a million per episode. And we'll say, okay, now you've got Europe for the first year. And the only carve out that we're going to have, and this is important, is North America, is the United States. Because despite all the changes, despite all the, the demand for content worldwide, the United States is still the biggest consumer of content worldwide, right? So you want to carve that out and make sure that that's clear. The benefit of that, of, of doing these deals right and putting your right foot in front of your left is that hopefully by the time you turn around and come back stateside in order to start setting up meetings and pitches and, and sales opportunities, let's say with the big streamers, Netflix, Apple Plus, so forth, is that you're already out of the hole. Any deal that can come up with those streamers is now profit. So instead of going directly to them and they'll say, well, we, you know, you're a First time uh, showrunners, this is a relatively smaller project. You've got a great team. You've got a great package. We're not sure that it's worth the investment because we're, we're looking to spend $5 million per episode and, and we've got Ridley Scott over here who wants to do the same thing. Uh, we're going to give it to Ridley because he's a proven entity, right? 
Mm-hmm. We can take a risk now because we're already we're willing to negotiate. We're already out of the hole, right? Everything from here on is profit. Hey, Apple, how about a one million per episode deal, a two million per episode deal? So we're giving them a deal, and the urgency is on their behalf is, ooh, this is a good deal. We get a fully finished show with an audience already for the first season. We can see how it is, and we're paying fractions to the dollar on it, as opposed to the thing we're going to pay for with Ridley Scott, and. And we also have the increased leverage of saying like, because we have something that's, that's ready to go and as a machine that's working, hey, Apple, you've got, until, you've got until Friday to decide. Otherwise, we're going to go next door to Netflix and then we're going to go to Hulu and we're going to go, you know, like we can shop it around. So mm-hmm. hopefully what happens is we get ourselves in a bidding war where we get at or even above what they were wanting to offer to someone like Ridley. Now, again, I'm speaking in broad terms and that's... that's uh, there's no guarantees, but that is one approach that I think we can take and, and utilize from the indie feature modus operandi and, and apply here in, in a very effective way. This is the assumption on my part. Until the Netflixes and Hulus and Disneys and Amazons and Apples see like, oh, Jeff and Pat, yeah, I know I'm going to want that, whatever comes out of them, kind of like the J.J. Abrams, where it's kind of like, whatever comes out of your brain, we've got it. In order to get to that point, we've got to show interest somewhere to prove to them that we're we're worth it. Right. So I think what makes a lot of sense about going to other markets then is there is a desire for American shows and for good content. And it's, it's not being prevented by anything, given that we, we have this streaming has blossomed in the past 10 years. Like it's not that long ago that the idea of watching a movie on a computer or TV that is, has a computer baked in was like, what? Internet's not fast enough, too di- digitized, no easy ability for content. It would be people plugging in DVDs or VHS tapes. I started using Netflix streaming in 2011, so 10 years ago, but I was still subscribing to the DVD service as well because streaming didn't have too much and buffering was an issue and so I think in the grand scheme of things, like the, the ability to go to a different market and say, yeah, th- this is a, a good approach because people can easily watch this sort of content. It's only in the past 10 years for us in America where streaming shows online has become much more available. Mm-hmm. And I'd imagine in many of these other countries, it might be so- sooner than that. So they're, they're on the upswing of this hunt for content uh, that likely doesn't dissipate if we use the U.S. as an example. I mean, worldwide, year-over-year growth, subscriber growth to a platform like Netflix in particular is increasing even by their most ambitious goals that they set two, three, four years ago, right? Like they, they were confident they were going to get users. They were out there. I think even they're surprised by how well the model is working. China, India, Turkey, Japan, Israel, the EU in general. These are all places where there's a need for stories. If there's one pandemic proof, you know, product out there, it's stories, right? It's TV. It's things that you can stream while you're cooped up inside. It's just a matter of being able to make the thing. There is a time and a place for a pay for play. There is a time and a place for, I, I believe, hedging your bets with a really known, really well-known name entity who doesn't need a teaser in order to get his or her 
point across, right? Because their name is J.J. Abrams or they're Steven Spielberg or whatever, right? They're Catherine Bigelow. We're not there yet. You know, we have to earn that right. So maybe what we can do for next time, in addition to keeping up the, the meetings that we're having, getting the word out, filling out the angel span material so that we can get our first newsletter out by the end of this month, we can start thinking about or poking around the sort of market research that would demonstrate that this is a show that is timely, relevant, and, and valuable. Because that, that actually could be kind of helpful both for Angel Span and in our conception of who exactly would be interested in this, why, and how have those other shows done? And maybe we can even dip our toes into what are the popular, I don't know how we would even get this information, but what are the popular shows in countries like Israel, Greece, China, England, Turkey, Poland, wherever, just so that we can draw some comps even there so that when we get the teaser made, get some investment, get the pilot done, we already have a warm idea for that sales rep to say, hey, we're thinking about these areas. Obviously, you're the expert, but this, this might be where we have the most success. On the next episode, we're going to unpack the budget for a teaser. We're also going to explore a little bit of what has us say the time is now for developing a TV show. Join us next week on Two Guys Making a TV Show.